What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. think about Jesus, some of the main things that they think about are his death on the cross, his resurrection, his miracles, his teachings. And, you know, if people were to describe Jesus in one word, it typically are words like love or forgiveness, gracious, merciful. And all those things are true about Jesus. Those are some of the most significant events in Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection, the miracles he did, the things that he taught. And some of the most important truths about Jesus is the fact that he is loving and forgiving and and gracious and merciful. But something important for us to understand is that is not the entirety of who Jesus is. He didn't just die on the cross and didn't just rise from the dead and teach good teachings and and do miraculous things. He did more than that. He's not just loving, forgiving, gracious, and merciful. He's much more than that. And, you know, one of the reasons that I think that oftentimes when people are thinking of Jesus or describing Jesus with words that we come to these things is because these are the things that we love most about him. You know, we love the fact that he sacrificed himself, that he rose from the dead to prove who he was, that he's so loving and merciful and gracious to us. And so we speak of those events. We describe him with those words, and and there's nothing wrong with doing that because it's true that that's who Jesus is. It's true that these events are, are things that Jesus did, but we also need to understand there's more to Jesus than that. So as long as we speak of the other things about Jesus and describe him, you know, in its entirety of who he is, then we're doing well. And and that's something that we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at an event in Jesus' life that's really not a typical thing that people think of when it's like, here, list events in Jesus' life that come to mind when you hear his name. This is typically not one of those that that people will bring up. And and actually what we're going to look at this morning for some people is even a little bit shocking. They're just like, this is totally opposed to the concept of Jesus that I have in my mind of meek and mild and loving and gracious and merciful. And, and so what we're going to see is something that a lot of people, they, they, they wouldn't use loving, forgiving, gracious, merciful to describe you know, this event. It would be words more like cleansing, righteous anger, judgment, discipline. And so the thing that Jesus does in the verses we're going to look at this morning really shows a different side of Jesus, a side that when he's angered by the wrong way that people act and the way that they misuse the temple of God, it's a side that's ready and willing to cleanse, a side that's ready to willing to discipline and to judge those who are doing these wrong things. And, and what we need to recognize, it's an important side of Jesus. You know, we might prefer, you know, the other things that we often gravitate to, but we need to recognize recognize this is a part of who Jesus is as well. And so this morning, we're going to look at the event where Jesus cleanses the temple of people who are abusing and misusing it. 
Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record at the end of Jesus's ministry, a cleansing of the temple. And it's really very similar to what we're going to look at here in John's gospel. But John is the one gospel that reveals that actually there is two times that Jesus did this. He didn't just do it right before he was crucified, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke bring out at the end of his ministry. He also started his ministry. One of the very first things that Jesus does is cleanse the temple. So at the beginning of the ministry, he does this. And at the very end of his ministry, he does this as well. And we're going to recognize that zeal for the temple, his response to the ungodly way that the temple was being used, the the misuse is very applicable to us today. Because we as the church are the temple of God. We as individuals are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' zeal for the temple, his response to the ungodly way in which his temple is being misused, is something that's going to be very applicable to you and I, to the way that the church is run, to the way that our personal lives are conducted. So let's see what we can learn and apply to our lives here as we look at this next event that is not the typical event that we normally think of about Jesus as he comes and cleanses the temple. Picking up where we left off last week, John chapter 2, verse 13 says this, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. So John tells us the Passover is at hand and Jesus is now traveling to Jerusalem. He's there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And something important to note is the Passover was the largest Jewish festival of the year. This was the most significant thing. They had several that they celebrated. Three were pretty much required of all Jewish men, but this one was the one that was the most important. This one was the biggest one of all, and it was the one that most people came and attended. Now, at that time, there was about 100,000 people that lived in the city of Jerusalem, but during the the Passover, that city would just be flooded with people coming from all different parts of Israel, but also different parts of the world. William Barclay wrote this, Astonishing as it may sound, it is likely that as many as two and a quarter million Jews sometimes assembled in the holy city to keep the Passover. So imagine this. Typically, you got 100,000 people in this city, and all of a sudden, the Passover happens, and it grows to over 2 million people. All these people are coming, and they want to come to the temple because that's where they got to go. That's where the sacrifice has to be made. That's where they got to come and, and celebrate what God did in delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And there were two things that were required of Jewish men during the Passover. First, They had to bring an animal without blemish for a sacrifice on behalf of themselves and their family. And second, they had to pay the yearly temple tax. Now, this is nothing wrong with these two things. These are things that God had established for them to do. But unfortunately, both these two events had been misused and abused and brought problems to those coming and doing it. And and the first problem came from the need to bring an animal without blemish to be sacrificed. 
You see, for people who were traveling a long distance, you know, some that weren't even in Israel, some that were in some other country and they had to make a boat journey or they had just a really long travel, you know, to bring an animal without blemish with them to be sacrificed was a big deal. And sometimes it might break a leg or something might happen to them on the journey. And guess what? It's no longer without blemish. It no longer can be sacrificed. So this was a, a problem. And so the priest decided, you know, we, we can deal with that. We have a solution for that. How about we just provide animals here at the temple without blemish? So when you show up, you don't have to bring one with you. You can buy one from us. We'll provide that for you. It'll be a, something that is a benefit to those who are going on this long journey. And, and probably when it first started, it was like, yeah, this is a great idea. This works well. This meets a good need. But then all of a sudden they realize, you know what? We can make a lot of money with this. This could be a, quite a source of income for us. You see, the priests, they were the ones who had to inspect the animals. If you wanted to you know, bring an animal to be sacrificed, it had to be without blemish. Well, who was the one who determined whether it was without blemish or not? The priest. And they would charge you for that inspection. So you had to pay for the inspection. And oftentimes they would come back and say, you know what? Sorry, it doesn't meet up to the standard that we have here. You know, it doesn't pass. And so good news is you can buy it an animal without blemish from us, and you know, we'll take this off your hand for you know, a really ridiculous price, and you know, we'll take it for cheap, we'll sell you one. And oftentimes they were taking these animals that actually were without blemish, saying they weren't, you know, okay, we'll take that, and then turn around and selling that to someone else as it was without blemish. But they were charging people really huge amounts of money. Uh, and this was one of the, the problems as well. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish historian, writes about how badly people were being ripped off. It says, during the Passover, a pair of doves worth a nickel were being sold for $4. I mean, think of that. That is an insane markup. Like today, if I'm going to buy a pair of doves, you know, and let's say they cost 50 bucks, with that kind of markup, I'd be paying four grand for those things. I mean, it's crazy to think of how much they were abusing people. And it's interesting that he specifically focuses on doves because doves were the cheapest animal you could buy. And God established, you know what? You can sacrifice doves if you're a poor family. If you can't afford a lamb, you can't afford a bull, you know what? You can buy these doves and that's okay. And so they were ultimately not just taking advantage of the wealthy, they were taking a huge advantage of those who had little to begin with and charging them exuberant amounts of money in order to have this unblemished animal that they could sacrifice. And so they had quite a racket going on in this area, and they were just abusing it, taking advantage of people. And this was the first problem. And imagine you being someone who wants to worship, who wants to sacrifice to the Lord for the sin of you and your household. And you come and you realize you're being taken advantage of. You're being ripped off by the people who are supposed to be representing God. The people who are supposed to be, you know, helping you in this process. And, you know, how would that impact your worship? How would that impact your feeling of this whole situation? It would definitely, you know, disturb you, I'm sure. But there was a second problem. And the second problem came from the need to have to pay the yearly tax, uh, the temple tax. And, and this was a half a shekel. Uh, but the problem that arose is the priest decided, you know what? It's not right if we take Roman currency or some other foreign currency and put that in the temple of God. I mean, we surely can't have, you know, foreign currency in the temple of God. And so the only currency that we're going to have in the temple of God is the temple currency. And this is what the temple currency looked like. And so they came up with their own coins. 
These coins are the coins that we will store here in the temple. And so to pay your temple tax, you have to pay it with these coins. You can't use the typical coin used in the day, especially, you know, the Roman coin. So, well, what do you got to do? Well, you got to take the coins that you normally have and you have to exchange them for the temple currency. Okay, well, that's not a big deal. Well, it's not a big deal until you get to the exchange rate. All of a sudden now, you're required to use these coins and they get to determine the exchange rate of what you're going to pay to get these coins. And so it's really, you know, you're paying a half a shekel, but actually, well, that's what you're supposed to pay, but you'd be paying a lot more because the exchange rate was so horrible. Now, for those of you who have traveled to another country, you probably discovered don't exchange your money at the airport. That's one of the worst places to exchange your money. Why they give you the worst exchange rate there is. Uh, and so, you know, they get you two ways. You, you go in there and you think, oh, I'm going to spend all this money. So you exchange all these dollars for whatever it is. And then you don't spend all that money. You're like, well, I want to get my dollars back. Okay, well, we'll exchange it back for you. We'll give you another horrible exchange rate. And so they get you on both sides of it. But this is kind of what they were doing here for people who are coming to pay the temple tax as worship to God, they're getting abused and ripped off and taken advantage of with this horrible exchange rate. And so these were merchants and priests and they would be set up. And ultimately, this would have been taking place, as you can see here from the picture, in the court of the Gentiles. Now, as you can see from the picture, the large area on each side of the temple is where the court of the Gentiles is. You might not be able to see. There's actually a wall that goes, it's kind of small around the temple. Only Jews could go in that. There's actually signs that basically beware. If you're a Gentile and you pass by this, you're going to get killed. Uh, Gentiles were not allowed to pass that. If they did, they would have immediately be killed. Uh, and so, but Gentiles could come into this larger area. But I want you to understand what this big area and its purpose was. Because this is something that I think helps us understand the response of Jesus to the situation that he sees. Because, you know, first of all, this area was a place where it was supposed to be a place of prayer a place of worship. It was a place where you could come and you could speak to rabbis and priests and you could learn more about the Torah, learn more about God's word. You could be taught. You know, it, it was a great place of growth and worship and teaching, but it was also the only place that Gentiles could come. And so if there was a Gentile who was interested in Judaism, interested in the God of the Bible, he could come to the temple, into that specific spot, and he could inquire, he could ask questions, and they could witness to and reveal the God of the Bible to these Gentiles who were lost. And so this was its place for prayer and worship and learning and witness. But imagine how difficult any of those things would be when that whole place is full of a bunch of animals full of a bunch of people who are exchanging money, all these animals all over the place and all the things that animals do, so the smell that would be in there. You know, imagine trying to come to have a place quiet to pray. Well, that's not going to be the place. You know, the place where you want to worship or want to have a conversation about God's word. You know, this would just be, you know, very difficult, especially, you know, in this time of Passover where now where you typically have 100,000 people, now you got a couple million people, so it's just packed full, all this stuff's going on, a perfect opportunity to witness to people who never would come to the temple any other time of the year, but now they're there, and yet this is what they see. This merchandise, people getting ripped off, the purpose of the temple was not being used the way that it was supposed to be used. The heart of Passover 
which was ultimately a time to worship God for his deliverance of the nation of Egypt, Israel from Egypt. You know, they were missing it. So those are two of the main problems that were happening at the Passover feast in the temple. And that's what Jesus sees when he arrives. There's all these people selling these animals for insane rates, telling people your animal's not good enough, you need our unblemished kind, exchange rates that were just ripping people off. And I want you to realize, you know what, this wasn't the first time Jesus saw this. He kept the law. That's something that we recognize that he did. So his whole life, he would have been coming every year to the temple for Passover. Every year, he would have been seeing this stuff. Every year, I'm sure the same feeling that we're going to see expressed here was within him, but yet he held on to it because it wasn't his time yet to start his ministry. It wasn't his time yet to reveal who he was, but now's the time. The start of his ministry is there, and I'm sure there was this, this built-up reality of every time I come and see the misuse of my father's house, it is disturbing me, angering me. And so let's see how Jesus responds to this misuse in verse 15 and 16. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, you read that response, and that's not the typical Jesus we think of. Oh, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus healing blind people, Jesus raising people from the dead, Jesus, you know, showing love to, you know, this person or that person. Jesus making a whip? Jesus running people out of the temple? You know, this is very different than what we typically think about. But I want you to notice something here. The first thing that John tells us is when he made a whip of cords. And the reason I want you to note that is because some people have come to this passage and they think, you know what, man, Jesus just had a flash of uncontrollable anger and he just blew up on everybody. But you know what? It takes time to make a whip of cords. It wasn't just this flash of anger. This was deliberate. He knew what he was about to do. He took the time to make the whip in order to do it. He thought through this. So this wasn't some flash of anger, but it was righteous anger. It was, I'm going to deal with what is happening with the misuse of my father's house. So Jesus makes a whip of cords, drives out those in the temple with the sheep, the oxen, pours out the changers' money, overturns the tables, and then he says to them, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, in John's gospel, we see, you know, I mean, uh, the movie, the gospel of John, there's a good depiction of this event because I think too often, you know, maybe this is hard to picture for us because we see so many, you know, visuals of Jesus sacrificing himself or, or healing. But take a look at this video. whip from cords and drove all the animals out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle.
overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. And he ordered those who sold pigeons Take them out of here! So is that what you think of when you think of Jesus, someone cleansing the temple with a whip? Well, this is something that's a part of who Jesus is. And maybe you're thinking, well, I don't like that part of Jesus. Well, you might not. But the reality is that's part of who he is. You better recognize that truth. He's someone who is angered with righteous anger when the temple of God is being misused. He's someone who's willing to cleanse it. He's willing to remove those who misuse his father's house. I think something important for us to understand is that when Jesus cracks the whip here, when he cleanses the temple here, he is just as God-like as when he is standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he's hanging on the cross at Calvary. That's who he is. We might prefer to gravitate to those other things, but this is a part of our Savior. And John reveals to us two responses to Jesus cleansing the temple. The first response is from his own disciples in verse 17. Then his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Now I would imagine the disciples, this was maybe a little shocking to them as well. And as they're watching Jesus just go to town in the temple here and maybe thinking, man, what's the high priest and the priest going to be thinking about this? They all of a sudden remember something. They remember a prophetic psalm that spoke of the Messiah. Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up. And in this psalm, it also speaks of Jesus' crucifixion. It speaks of, you know, vinegar can be given to him, and we know that happened to him on the cross. It was, it was a psalm speaking about, you know, the Messiah and what would happen to him, but also as a byproduct of his zeal for the temple, because he's going to do this again. And right after he does it, that's kind of like the last straw for the religious leaders. And they're like, all right, we're killing this guy. And so we see this and the disciples recognize, man, zeal for the house of God has eaten him up. I remember that, that speaking of the Messiah, and this is a sign. What Jesus has just done is a sign that he truly is the Messiah because he has this great zeal for God's house and he's willing to cleanse it from those who misuse it. So now they're even more confident in who Jesus is. But that's not how everybody responds. Not everyone looks and goes, oh, wow, this must be the Messiah. This must be the one that was prophesied in Psalms. There's some other groups that don't really appreciate this. The second response is from the Jews, more specifically the religious leaders. Notice what happens in verses 18 through 22. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then, they, then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So the Jews come, mainly the religious leaders, I'm sure the high priests, the priests, they're all coming out. They see this ruckus and uproar and Jesus doing all this, and they're not pleased by what's taking place. You know, he, he's disturbing their big money-making uh, thing going on here. And so they ask him a question. 
And really, it's a question about authority. They say, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And what they're really saying with that is we need a sign from you to prove to us that you have the authority to come into this temple and do what you're doing. Who do you think you are coming in here and doing this? What sign are you going to show us that you have the authority to do these things? And I think that's a, a fair enough question. You know, if you're, you know, in the role as the high priest or the priest and, and this is happening, you want to know, hey, who's giving you the authority? Imagine if someone came into the church today and started whipping people out of here and, you know, who gave you the authority to come and do that? That, that would be a question that we would want to know because, you know, there are certain people that we recognize they have authority in the house of God. And there are others, you would say, that they don't have authority. And we have that in society as well. I mean, if you were speeding down the freeway and a cop pulls you over, if you're smart, you wouldn't be like, who gave you the authority to pull me over? You know, you realize police officers have the authority to pull you over. They have the authority to give you a speeding ticket because you're breaking the law and they're there to uphold the law. But imagine if you were speeding down the freeway and some irate citizen pulls you over and starts telling you, I'm going to give you a ticket. Even though you broke the law, you'd probably be just be irritated and say, who are you? What authority do you think you have to pull me over and give me a ticket? Get lost. You know, we think, you know what? You don't have the authority to do this. And we'd be annoyed by that. Well, I think the religious leaders kind of saw Jesus as that irate citizen pulling them over for speeding. Well, wait a second. What are you doing in our temple? What are you doing doing this? Who's giving you the authority to come in here and turn over our tables and whip out our animals? Well, Jesus answers their question. What sign are you going to show us? Now, it's interesting. The sign that Jesus just did, or what he just did, was a sign. They're asking for a sign. But notice the disciples realize what you just did in cleansing the temple was a sign. Psalm 69, 9 says, hey, zeal for your house is eating you up. They, they, they connected right away the dots. Hey, this shows that you are the Messiah. This is a sign. But you know what? There was another passage in the Old Testament prophesying about the Messiah that's even more specific. Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Malachi is prophesying that the, the Messiah is going to come to where the temple as a refiner's fire and purify and purge who the Levites, speaking of the priests. What Jesus did was an act of purifying, an act of purging. And it was a clear sign that he was the Messiah. So you have that. You got Psalm 69. The religious leaders should have recognized this is a sign. What you just did was a sign. This is clear who you are. But no, no, no. Who? What sign are you going to give us to, to prove this? And Jesus says, fine. You want a sign? He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. But notice John makes very clear to us that Jesus is speaking about the temple of his body. 
And maybe he even said that, destroy this temple, like referencing or pointing to himself, and maybe he didn't. But he was speaking about himself, destroy this body, and in three days, I will raise it up. Now, this is interesting because he's speaking to the people that are going to kill him. He's speaking to the people that are going to destroy his body. But I love what he says, I will raise it up. I mean, that's a pretty powerful statement from Jesus. You kill me and I will rise myself from the dead. David Guzik wrote, No mere man could make the claim to raise himself from the dead. Even if one had confidence that God would raise him, the claim of Jesus is remarkable, audacious, and evidence of his self-awareness of deity. The resurrection is the greatest sign that Jesus is God. You know, that's why we love Easter. I mean, it proves everything. If Jesus just died on the cross and that was it, then, you know, as Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, we are of all men the most pitiable. If, there's no, if he didn't rise and didn't prove that he was God, then everything we believe crumbles. The resurrection is the ultimate proof that Jesus is God, that he has the power to raise himself from the dead, which only God can do. But those listening Everybody, including the disciples, they missed what Jesus was talking about. They assumed he was speaking of the literal temple there in Jerusalem because they're at the temple. You know, he's there in, you know, the, the probably, you know, where the Gentiles were, the court of the Gentiles. And so they thought, you know, you're speaking of the literal temple that, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise it up. Well, we know you're a carpenter, Jesus, but three days, come on. You know, it took 46 years for us to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Really? That's the sign? But they missed it. He wasn't speaking about the temple, the little, phys- the physical structure He was speaking about his own body. But he wasn't the only one who missed it. Notice with the disciples, verse 22, it wasn't until after Jesus rose from the dead that the disciples remembered what Jesus said and finally understood what he meant. And then we're told, then they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So it wasn't until Jesus finally rose from the dead that it clicked. Hey, remember that time when he said, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it from the dead? He was speaking of himself. Oh, okay, now it makes sense. Now we understand it. Now we believe it. But they missed it too. Both they and the religious leaders didn't get what Jesus was speaking about. But during this Passover feast, we also have another group that responds to Jesus in verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Yeah, this is interesting here. You know, as he is there, John doesn't tell us the specific miracles that Jesus did. And he already told us at the end of the letter that, you know, I only chose really seven specific miracles that prove that Jesus is God, but he did way more than that. Well, here's some of those way more that he did. He's doing miracles and people are seeing the supernatural power of Jesus. And we're told that many of them believed in him when they saw the signs that he did. But you know what? Well, look what we're told. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. 
Here's the important thing to recognize about Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what's in everybody. He knows the motive. He knows the thoughts. He knows the heart. He knows if someone's belief in him is true and accurate or if someone is just like, wow, you're powerful. That's amazing. I want to follow you a bit. We're going to see later on in the Gospel of John, he's going to feed a bunch of people and they're going to start following him. And he's going to tell them, hey, you're not following me because you actually believe that I am God. You just want a free meal. You're following me because of what I can do for you. And so there are people who see the power of Jesus, who see the miracles. Oh, I believe that you're powerful. Uh, I believe that you can benefit my life. And so, sure, I'll follow you. But notice that Jesus knew what was in their hearts. And so we're told that he did not commit himself to them. I know your belief isn't true right now. You know, there's many people, you know, when he rides into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry that are, you know, declaring him, Hosanna, save now that they're saying you're the Messiah. And that same group is a few days later saying, crucify him. He knew the fickleness of the crowd. He knew that a lot of people didn't truly believe in him for who he was. But see, he knows what's in our thoughts. He knows what's in our hearts. He's not fooled by false belief. He's not fooled by a hypocritical demonstration of something that's not real. We see this throughout his ministry. One of the reasons the Pharisees hate him so much is he always calls them out for what they truly are. You see, they wanted everyone to believe we're so spiritual and wonderful and great. And Jesus is like, no, I see exactly what you are. I know what you are. You don't deceive me. And I'm going to call you out for what you are. Because I see what's in your heart, even though you're trying to disguise that. Now, the thing I want to conclude with, and something that I think is so important in what we see here, something that the religious leaders completely missed about Jesus, is that he is the Lord of the temple. And I want us to note three important things that Jesus does as the Lord of the temple. First, as the Lord of the temple, Jesus has authority over it. You know, that was the question the religious leaders asked, basically, by what authority? Show us a sign that shows your authority to do what you have done here in this temple. And Jesus gives them the greatest sign of all, the sign of the resurrection, the sign that says, I am God, and that's why I have the authority. This is my temple, and this is why I can do what I did. This is why I can cleanse this temple, because it is mine, and you are misusing it. I have complete authority over this temple because I am the Lord of the temple. Second, as the Lord of the temple, Jesus examines it in light of its purpose. As I mentioned, the main purposes of the temple was a place to worship, a place to pray, a place to learn, a place to witness. But it was being misused. Its purpose wasn't being fulfilled in the way in which it was supposed to be, especially here at Passover celebration. So Jesus, he comes and he examines. He sees the misuse, which leads us to the third thing. As the Lord of the temple, Jesus cleanses it. As Jesus sees the misuse of God's temple, he responds by cleansing it, by driving out and rebuking those who are misusing it. But here's the thing that's applicable to us. You might think, well, yeah, who cares? You know, a temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with me? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is not just the Lord over that temple, that there are actually more temples in the Bible than the literal, physical temple 
in Jerusalem. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 through 22 says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fit together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Here and in 1 Peter and other places reveals the church as a whole, the body of Christ, is the temple of God. But you know what? There's another thing that we see, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple are you? So not only is the church as a whole the temple of God, but more specifically, what is the church made up of? It's made up of individual believers who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are the temple, the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. So Jesus is the Lord of the temple of the church, and he is the Lord of the temple of us as individual believers. And because of that... The three important things that we know that Jesus does as Lord of the temple are very applicable to us. It's a profound and an important impact on the church as the large body of Christ, but it also has a profound and important impact on us as individuals who make up the body of Christ. Since Jesus is the Lord of the temple of the church, guess what? He has authority over the church. The Bible says he is the head of the church. Now, unfortunately, there are people in, in roles like I have who want to make themselves the head of the church. But no, there's no man who is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the authority in the church. And because he is the head of the church and has the authority over the church, guess what he does? He examines it in light of its purpose. Jesus wants each church to fulfill the purpose that he has established in his word for churches to do. And he's going to examine the church to see if they are fulfilling that purpose. And a great example of this is in the book of Revelation. Jesus writes seven letters to seven different churches. And with each one of those letters, you see a clear examination from Jesus to this church of what they're doing right and what they are doing wrong. It's very clear. I am examining you. I am watching what you're doing. I'm taking note of if you are actually fulfilling the purpose for which I called you. And these churches, each one of them have areas in which they were not fulfilling that purpose. Now, as the Lord and authority and examiner of the church, when Jesus does find things that the church is doing that is not fulfilling the purpose that he gave, guess what he's going to do? He's going to cleanse it. And at the end of each letter uh, that we see in these seven churches, Jesus brings a warning. Here's the problem. Here's the things that I have examined and seen that are wrong. And if you don't correct them, there's going to be some cleansing. If you don't correct them, here's what I'm going to do. And this is one of those areas as well. Where we don't like this. I, I love the part of you know, the letter where he talks about how faithful the church has been and how he's going to reward the church. And, oh, this is so great. Let's just focus on that. And let's neglect the reality that the church has issues and that Jesus is going to deal with them. But that's part of it. That's part of who he is. Yeah, he loves and rewards. But he also is there to examine and judge 
the things that we do that go against the purpose that he has set forth for us. So Jesus being Lord of the church is significant. It's profound. But maybe more personal to us is that he is the Lord of the temple of our lives. And so that means, guess what? He has authority over you. He has authority over me. And this might be one of the biggest areas of struggle that many Christians have of relinquishing authority to the one who actually deserves it, to the one who should have it. And that means me saying, I am not the authority of my life, Jesus is. Now, we might say that with our words, we might claim that at church, but the way in which we live oftentimes shows, I don't believe that. I'm living like I'm the authority. Because if I really believe that Jesus was the authority and that what he said is what mattered and that his will was what was important, I think we could probably start examining areas of our life and realize, well, that's not according to his will. That's not according to his authority. This is all about my authority and my will. And we need to recognize he is the Lord of us. We are no longer our own, the Bible says. We were bought at a price. Guess what? We belong to Jesus now. Because of that, we need to live for him. As Jesus told us and we pray, it shouldn't be praying for our desires, our will. Pray for the will of God to be done on earth as it is in heaven. As the authority of our life, Jesus is going to examine it in light of its purpose. He wants to see, are we fulfilling the purpose that he has for us? And there's really, you could look at, and we could go through all sorts of purposes, but the three main purposes that we see in Scripture, most importantly, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God with all you are. A huge purpose for each individual. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others, and a great demonstration of that love is loving the lost by getting the gospel out to them. If you can love God, love others, and love the lost, well, you know what? You're, you're pretty much fulfilling the majority of the purpose of what God has for you, but he's going to be examining that. He's going to be seeing, how are you doing in your love for God? How are you doing in your love for others? How are you doing in your love for the lost? And when you and I misuse and abuse the temple of our body, when we misuse and abuse and just live for ourselves and we're not living for him, we're not loving him or others, we're not reaching out to people who are lost, Jesus sees that because he's examining us and he's going to bring a cleansing work into our life. That whip of corrections coming. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 says this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Jesus loves you and I too much to allow us to continue to misuse the temple of our body that he has blessed us with, that he dwells in. He loves you too much to just keep going down that sinful road of disobedience. Just like as a parent, if you're a parent with kids, you love your kid too much just to let them live life the way they want. Say, no, 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 there is consequences to that kind of behavior. And so I'm going to discipline you to train you to help you for your good. Jesus the same way. I love you too much to let you keep going. And notice here what Hebrews is telling us. Don't despise it. 
Don't despise the discipline of God. He disciplines you because he loves you. He wants what's best for you. And when you're misusing your body, he's going to come alongside and say, hey, now, I'm going to maybe, you know, start with the loving approach. If that doesn't work, you know, the timeout's not working. Well, guess what? The whip of cords is coming. I'm going to bring something that's going to help you change. I'm going to bring something that's going to help you turn from the way in which you're living your life because I love you too much to let you continue down this road of destruction. And I think this is something that we desperately need, but is this something that we want? I mean, the whole, uh, it's going to hurt me more, it's going to hurt you mindset. And, you know, as a kid, you don't want to be spanked. It's like, you know, parents who ask that, you want discipline? Oh, yes, I'd love it, please. I mean, no kid wants it. Of course, no is the answer. But, you know, when God is speaking as well, it's like, hey, do you want it? No. Well, well, the way to avoid it is obedience. But I think, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, I need it. I don't want it, but I recognize I'm a stubborn person or I'm a prideful person or I'm a selfish person or or whatever it is. I need some correction in order to get me back to the place that I want to be. Because if I'm just left to go with what I want to do and there's no correction and there's no consequence, then sadly, I'm just going to keep pursuing these things that I shouldn't, Lord. So I need you to come and drive out what needs to be driven out of my life, to overturn what needs to be overturned in my life, to take away what needs to be taken away so that I can ultimately fulfill the purpose that you have for me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. I want to end with this verse. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God and you are not your own for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's the thing I want us to really just kind of soak in and think about you and I, God bought us and the cost for your life, the cost for my life to belong to him was the most expensive thing that he could pay the life of his son on the cross for you and for me. And I want us to finish this morning remembering that price that was paid for us. We're going to remember that through taking communion. But you know what? I want us to remember it in light of what we're told here in 1 Corinthians 6, that you were bought at a price, but now there's something that you should do. Therefore, since God gave his life for you, this is what he expects of you and for me. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So as we remember what Jesus did, as we thank him for his sacrifice, that he gave his life for us. I think one of the ways that we can demonstrate true thankfulness is say, Lord, help me to do this. I realize that you bought me, that you own me, that my life no longer belongs to me. It's now yours. And I want to glorify you with the life that I live. And that's the best way that I could thank you for giving your life for me. I'm going to give my life to you. And I'm going to live for you. And I'm going to do what you've called me to do. And I know there'll be times that I fail and be times that I struggle. And I'm going to be so, so thankful that you forgive and that you bring correction and that you get me back to where I need to be. But ultimately that we come to communion with not just gratefulness, which we should, but also, Lord, I want to change to glorify you more because of what you've done for me. We need to understand Jesus has authority over us personally. He examines our life in light of its purpose, and he will cleanse when necessary because he loves you. 
Can I have the worship team come on up?